0: Join me today as we read from 1 Samuel 15, verses 7 through 23. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and the goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out all night long to the Lord, Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and lowing of cattle I hear, Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep and goats and cattle, Saul admitted, "'but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. "'We have destroyed everything else.' "'Then Samuel said to Saul, "'Stop, listen to what the Lord told me last night. "'What did he tell you?' Saul asked. "'And Samuel told him, "'Although you may think little of yourself, "'are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? "'The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, "'and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, "'Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, "'until they're all dead.' Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Oh, but I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Of course, very familiar passage, probably the favorite passage in the Bible for most of us here today, um, because it's such a happy passage of scripture. We're uh, about two-thirds of the way through a 31-week study through the entire Old Testament narrative, and we have to look at this failed first king of Israel because there's important lessons for us in it that are full of hope, and what we're looking at is a defining moment in his life. Many of us have experienced some great moments of victory and joy or great sadness. But as we look back now through that season, we can look farther back and see a a moment in time that began what took place. Whether it was a turning point towards a great joyful experience or a turning point towards tragedy. uh, They're called defining moments in our lives. This is that for Saul. Saul becomes an angry, tyrant murderous, power-grabbing king who ends up going insane. But he didn't start that way. When he's called out as king, first of all, he's, he's tall, he's good-looking, and he's humble. When they're anointing him, he's hiding in the luggage. I mean, it's one of those cute little stories. Early on, when he's consolidating his rule, he's gracious to his enemies. How did he turn from that to mad, angry, murderous Saul. This is a big part of it. So let's talk about the story. Verse 18 summarizes what it was that God had told Saul to do through Samuel. And he sent you on a mission. Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. So God's instruction, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment, because I'm sure some of you are saying, well, that's why I don't like the Old Testament. It's passages like this. It's passages like this that give Jesus a bad rep because of what God does in the Old Testament. So before you go there, let's just pick up the story, then we'll come back and try to get the context of this. God tells Saul to destroy these people completely. Saul does not do that. Saul keeps the best Livestock, which is the equivalent to the wealth. He keeps the spoils, the best livestock, destroys the things that he wouldn't want to keep anyway. And then he keeps the king. We're going to explore the nature of that disobedience, but let's go back and just explore this idea. Why would God ask anybody to do that? I mean, it's a pretty awful thing from our context. In fact, if you just look at it through our lens of sensibility, you'd think Saul was a bit more merciful than God was. Why would God ask that? Well, you have to look at culture in that day, and you have to look exactly what God is saying. You see, the Amalekites were literally a band of marauders. That's who they were. The worst of all people. They had left a wake of devastation. They had destroyed and killed whole cities, just come in and devastated and wiped them out. This was a group of murderers, and God wanted to exact justice. So why would God ask that even the livestock get destroyed? This is the important point. Sometimes force is essential to combat evil. We don't like that. And we think those that jump into war typically jump in too soon. But sometimes the only way to deal with certain evils is with force. But God has a particular goal in mind when he says that's what's necessary here. He's looking for justice. You see, when most nations go to war, we like to claim it's about truth and justice. But the reality is, when you look back on history, nations go to war really for power and for possessions. God is saying to his people, you are not going to be like that. This is going to be an act of justice alone and you will not profit one cent from it. No slaves, no livestock, no spoils of war, nothing. I want the people of the world to know this is just about judgment. Nations go to war for power and wealth. That's what the Amalekites were. When the Amalekites went to war, that's exactly why they did it. And God's saying, I will not have my people like that. Saul, in essence, becomes like the Amalekites. We'll explore why he kept the king alive in particular in just a moment. But what Saul does is he acts just like the Amalekites. Now, that's pretty interesting because if you go back a little bit to when the children of Israel asked Samuel to give them a king in 1 Samuel 8, they say, give us a king who will rule us just like the other nations. So what Israel was saying was, we don't just want a prophet, Samuel. We want a king just like everyone else. Think about it. What this story shows us is that God actually gave them what they wanted. And God will do that. God will let you have what you want sometimes so that it proves out to be not what you really need. Saul becomes a king just like all the other kingdoms around him. The children of Israel have totally given into the way of doing things, the way of thinking, the way of using force, the way of accumulating wealth of the cultures around us. This was in a time when it was about warfare and bloodshed, but that tendency still exists today. We just do it with checking accounts and, and lawnmowers <laughs> and stock options and takeovers. See, there's always the looking around at how other people do it and saying, that's how we should do it. And there's always God saying, no, my people do things differently. This is how we're going to do it. This is what's going to set us apart. And so the first thing God does is give Israel what they want. They give them a king who will become exactly the kind of king they want in order for him to then give them the king they truly need. And we'll talk about that next week. So, as a result of this, God rejects Saul. Now, how could Saul do this? What was the root cause under it? We've explained what he did. How do we do that? When we do that, when we find ourselves making decisions that actually are contrary to how God wants us to act, but at the time, they seem perfectly fine, and we know stories of people who start down a track that leads them to ruin. I want to show you the root cause of this. And it's, it's really seen in verse 19 and 20. This is midway through the conversation. Samuel says, Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. What had God told him to do? Destroy everything. What did he do? He kept the spoils and the king alive for a purpose we'll explain in just a couple minutes. And yet he stands there in front of Samuel and says, I did obey the Lord. And there is one of the root causes for our penchant as human beings to make decisions that can move us in a disastrous way, we convince ourselves that we're not doing it. It's what Tim Keller calls an almost unlimited capacity for self-deception. We all struggle with it, and it's at the heart of all decisions that start us down this path. I just want to read a quote that I found with Tim Keller in a sermon he did on this very passage. The human heart has an almost unlimited capacity to hide the truth from itself if it's too painful to face. Think about that. The human heart has an almost unlimited capacity to hide the truth from itself if it's too painful to face. It's possible to hear, but not really hear. It's possible to know something and yet not know it because we don't want to know it. Self-deception is not the most terrible thing we do, but it is the reason we do the most terrible things. We need to understand this capacity in all of us. We can justify things that we know are wrong. We can not know things because we choose not to know them. We can know something and yet smother our conscience of it. And this is one reason that otherwise decent people can do indecent things you know but you don't want to know and so you don't know let me give you just a few examples of this years ago before there were gps systems which means nobody should ever get lost (laughs) back when there were no gps one of the common jokes was how guys were so stubborn about being lost how many of you remember those days guys driving and typically a wife says we're lost i'm not lost Or when you're driving your car and it's making a bad noise and you turn the music up. (laughs) I know it, but I don't want to know it, so I don't know it. Here's one, a gifted athlete, father's prized son, but yet the son is constantly getting in trouble at each school he goes to because his classmates call him a thief. And what the father does is come in and deny aggressively My son is no thief. He's a victim. You're jealous of him. And that father will fight and blame the school and head off mad and put his gifted athlete son in another school. But at home, the father keeps everything locked up. You know, but you don't want to know, so you don't know. In World War II, the very first town that the Allied forces came to where they discovered a concentration camp was the the city of Ordruf. There was a village and there was a concentration camp and they had slaughtered tens of thousands of Jewish people there. And in their haste, as the Allies were coming, the German forces tried to dig up the mass graves and the piles of bodies and burn them, but they didn't finish. The Allies came and saw this, this, this horrible atrocity that had taken place. George Patton, Iron Guts Patton, sees the scene and immediately throws up. He goes to the village and confronts the people who were in the village about whether or not they knew, and they said, we didn't know, we didn't know. He said, I don't know if you didn't know, but you're going to help us bury these people in individual graves. When that was done, the mayor and his wife hung themselves, and the note that they left said this, we didn't know, but we did know. We didn't know, but we did know. That same mechanism that enables people to become complicit with that evil keeps you and me from admitting we're lost, from admitting that the carnage to be worked on, from admitting that not only our kids have a problem that needs to be dealt with, but maybe our marriage does. From admitting that there's something wrong with our body and we need to go see a doctor. That same mechanism can allow decent people to contribute to indecent things simply by turning away and allowing the evil to continue. We know, but we don't want to know. So we don't know. We see three different faces of this self-deception in verse 15. Well, let's let's go back even further. Verse 13. The first thing that Saul says as Samuel comes. Samuel hasn't said anything to him yet. Saul says, the Lord bless you. I have obeyed the Lord's instructions. Now, why does Saul say that? The very first thing. Methinks he doth protest too much. Who is he actually trying to convince? Then we go forward and we see the faces of self-deceit here. Now, verse 15. The soldiers, he said, brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. So there's really three different types of self-deceit here. The first one is blame-shifting. The soldiers. Actually, in the Hebrew language, it just says they did it. The amorphous they. Wasn't me. I didn't do it. The second thing he does is he hides behind religion and morality. Yeah, we kept these, but we're going to have a great worship service out of it. We're going to sacrifice them to God. Sometimes the most horrible things are done in the name of religion. We see that happening all over the world today, don't we? A lot of atrocities in the name of religion, hiding behind it, convincing ourselves we're doing what's right, we're on a godly crusade. But we do that too. We do that in our own lives. Put up with things in our lives that we know are wrong because we say, Yeah, but I'm a good church person. I'm a church goer. What's the third thing he does? Partial obedience, right? We killed everything else. We obeyed the Lord with those ones. Doesn't that count? I'm thinking of Miracle Max for some reason from uh, Princess Bride. He's not dead, he's only mostly dead. Dead is dead. And disobedience is disobedience. That's why Samuel goes on, and this is the famous verse from this passage. He says, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of a lamb. See, we all play that game. We all need to identify this mechanism in ourselves. What's the solution to that? I do believe, as Keller says, that our capacity to delude ourselves is nearly infinite. We all live with a myth about ourselves. We can't permit ourselves to look at what's painful in us. And that's where our self-deceit kicks in. The things that are most painful for us to admit about ourselves in a specific circumstance or about our very person, our being, those are the things that we are most deceptive. I would go farther to say that the people who lie the best to other people are really good at lying to themselves first. How do we free ourselves from this? What we're going to do is look at Saul's particular condition, why certain things were particularly painful for him to deal with. And it's found in verse 17, just quickly. Samuel said, "'Although you were once small in your own eyes,' Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Remember we went back just a few minutes ago to Saul at his inauguration? He was small in his own eyes. He didn't think he was up for the task. He was hiding in the luggage when he should have been standing claiming his crown. Small in his own eyes. And Samuel still calls that out of him. You still don't understand who you are. You're still trying to justify yourself because you think you're too small. You're trying to prove your value and your worth. When God's given you value, God's given you worth. God's anointed you and made you king over Israel. Don't you understand? You don't need to be proving yourself. But what's he doing? He's building a monument to his greatness. Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor, has turned on and gone on to Gilgal. He's building a monument for himself. That ought to make me bigger. He's acquiring the spoils of war, he's amassing wealth. And you know why he kept the king? Because that's what you did when you wanted to prove that you were an emperor. You kept kings on a leash. That was a power play. See, He's trying to prove his value. And so therefore, he can't face this as a failure because all that he's done here is to increase that myth he's created about himself. When all along, he already had significance. He already had his worth. He was looking for it in the wrong place. And that's exactly what you and I are like. The things you and I are most unwilling to admit about ourselves are the things that threaten where we find our worth. The myth or the story we've created about ourselves and who we are that allow us to feel noble and valued and worthy. And just like with Saul, who never got there, we can get past our need for self-deceit by understanding our value in God. Here's the solution. It's really a two-fold solution. It's first of all about embracing the love of God. We jump to the New Testament. Say this verse with me from Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very popular verse and well-known for many of us But I want you to focus on that phrase, while we were still sinners. God's love is ours, not because we've earned it. He just loves us. And when I know I'm infinitely loved, I don't have to pretend, I don't have to hide, I don't have to deceive myself. When God knows so much of me and still loves me, I can drop the pretense. Two sides of the same coin. The first is the love of God, the second, is because of God's love and because of Christ's death, the grace of God. Both verses from the powerful book of Romans given us by the Apostle Paul. Let's say this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. Because God is not my judge any longer, but my Father. In fact, Paul says in the book of Romans, we call him Abba Daddy because now it's intimate family I'm his, I'm his. Even my current sin is covered by Christ. That's not to say I shouldn't try to outgrow it, but the point is I don't have to hide it. I can be free to let God deal with it. I can look at it the way he looks at it because he doesn't judge me by it. I think it was probably 10, 12 years ago, I I went through a period of a, a new level of discovery about myself. And about the spiritual journey, when I began to allow myself to look at some of my personal myths, you know, for me, like a lot of people who find themselves on platforms, I, I have a bit of an affirmation addiction. From a very early age, I, I found worth in being in front of people singing, and my father's pride was most expressed as a pastor when I was on stage with him. So I, I found great value in that and uh, didn't really see it in myself. I knew it, but I didn't want to know it, so I didn't know it. You know what I mean? I just went about positioning myself pretty routinely to have that affirmation filled, and and I did it in a very religious way. I was super religious. I was a worship guru. And all the time I'm asking people, would you please worship Jesus, but would you also notice that my voice sounds particularly good this morning? I didn't say that, and I didn't want to admit I was thinking it, but that was there. And when I went through a hard season in leadership, I convinced myself I was doing the right thing, I was leading in the right way, but I wasn't getting the response that I wanted. And my first response was to say, what's wrong with all these people? At the time, I was in a great accountability relationship with, with a few very godly men, and they just lovingly turned the mirror back on me and said, maybe it's not them. If you're running into this with everybody you're talking to, maybe the weak link is you. And it was through that loving process that I was able to recognize that I was positioning myself, even in the most difficult of conversations, to come out of it with you thinking better of me than you did at the beginning. Now I now recognize that was my agenda. Subtle, and not my only agenda, just one of them. I had good agendas too, but that was there. And I was afraid to look at it. As I cracked that open and took a look at it, you know who was already there? Jesus was already there. I closed the door, but he was right in there waiting. And he said, come on, yeah, yeah, it's all here. And do you know how much I love you? And do you know that in Christ there's no condemnation? What I realized is that when I opened myself up to look at these things that were victim of my own self-deceit, that there was nothing that I was going to discover that God didn't already know about me. And the chances are people around me hadn't seen already too. I was just the last to catch on. And to get there freed me to let God transform me in those things. And, And I gotta tell you, just naming that weakness in some ways freed me from it. Just calling it out. And knowing it was there, it lost its power over me, especially when I was able to say, there's no condemnation because of Christ. You see, what are you hiding from? Why do you need to hide? Drop your guard. I would say, invite Christ into those spaces, but really what you need to do is invite yourself into those spaces because, believe it or not, Christ is there waiting. The true sovereign of our lives the beneficent, gracious King. Let's pray. Father, thank you very much for this truth. We look at a sad story and we find hope. We find grace. We find forgiveness because we see it in the context of the whole and we see Jesus. Father, help us to be a people who are about truth, who experience your grace, who drop our guard, so that we can be authentic to one another and be a true community where grace rules. In Jesus' name, amen.